Good morning. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. On Thursday, the last night of the Democratic National Convention, Joe Biden finally took the virtual stage. So it's a great honor and humility. I accept this nomination for president of the United States of America. It was another night that showcased the depth of the Democratic bench. There were speeches from former rivals like Senators Cory Booker and Senator Amy Klobuchar, as well as former Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Everyone delivered their speeches from various parts of the country. And because of this, when Biden finally spoke, he was all by himself from his home state of Delaware behind a podium on a stage lined with U.S. flags. Now, for the fourth night in a row, there was no audience, no longstanding ovations, just Biden making a simple case for his candidacy. This is a life-changing election. This will determine what America is going to look like for a long, long time. Biden framed the November election as a chance to redirect what he described as a country veering wildly off course under the leadership of Donald Trump. He argued America is facing four crises, the pandemic, the ensuing economic crisis, racial justice and climate change. Four historic crises, he called it, a perfect storm. He also drew on his lifelong career in government while touching on the tragic losses that have defined his personal life. He promised to take the country down a better path. In this dark moment, I believe we're poised to make great progress again. That we can find the light once more. Considering the challenges of a first-ever virtual convention, the Democrats put on a tightly produced and message-oriented show this week. Writing for The Washington Post, Robin Gavon described the overall theme as house on fire, with the Democrats telling voters they have a fire extinguisher at the ready in the form of their votes. In Politico, Ryan Lizza takes a whole different approach. He argues, for the Democrats, this week was not about policy— It was about uniting progressives, moderates, and even Republicans around the idea that our democracy is in peril and that we need to put politics aside and save it. Fox News offers a roundup of what some conservative political commentators are saying about the Democratic convention. Chris Wallace gave a resounding approval of Biden's speech last night, saying he, quote, blew a hole in Trump's attempts to paint him as mentally past his prime. Britt Hume, on the other hand, said that while the Biden-Harris ticket is in an enviable position, his takeaway was Democratic leadership is clearly worried that not enough people will feel inspired to vote. Amy Walter, who's with the nonpartisan Cook Political Report, she struck a balance on Twitter. She suggests that the Democratic Party showcased a smart, forward-facing coalition, but she also noted that the tone coming from celebrity MCs might have been out of touch especially for an election that's supposed to be focused on everyday Americans. Now, next week, the Republicans have their national convention. According to Politico, the president's top aides were closely watching this week and studying what the Democrats did well and what landed flat. A Trump advisor told Politico part of their message next week will be about how, quote, the suburbs are becoming unsafe and that if Biden and Harris win, they'll only make it worse. Politico is also reporting The president plans to be a really big presence throughout the convention. On each day, he'll either make a video appearance or he'll be represented by someone in his family. And when he does accept the nomination, he'll do it from the White House grounds. That's a pretty unprecedented and controversial move. 
This whole week, we saw Democrats shine a spotlight on ordinary Americans. Well, the Republicans are planning on doing the same thing next week. The St. Louis couple who pointed their guns at protesters of police brutality as they marched through their gated community, they have been invited to speak. A father of a student killed in Parkland, who's a vocal gun rights advocate. And Alice Johnson, whose sentence was commuted by President Trump at Kim Kardashian's urging. And all next week, Apple News will be offering special coverage of the Republican convention. Visit the Apple News app each evening to find our live blog, wrap-up of speeches, reactions to those key moments, and so much more. We're getting our first test cases of what happens when colleges reopen in the middle of a pandemic. Earlier this month, students returned to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill By Monday this week, the university identified four clusters of COVID-19. More than 130 students tested positive. Now the university is saying all instruction is moving online for the fall. Andrew Carter, a local reporter for the News and Observer, was on the UNC campus as this story played out. And he describes the scene of parents driving up in their vans and SUVs there to pick up the kids that they had just dropped off a couple of weeks earlier. Students were carrying out boxes of unopened food, carrying their mattress toppers, their mini fridges, everyone just leaving the dorms, packing it all up to head back home. For freshman Charisma Sumter, it felt like she had gotten just a tiny taste of freedom, and now that had been cut short. Here she is talking to the paper. It's very heartbreaking that I have to move out after less than like a week of actual college experience and less than a week of classes. It's very heartbreaking. Another freshman, Hope Gamble, told the News and Observer she's frustrated with the students who didn't follow social distancing guidelines, though she said she understands her classmates wanted to have a social life. One member of the UNC Board of Trustees defended the university. He told the News and Observer allowing students to return was a, quote, risk worth taking, and he's not sorry for trying. The students aren't asking for an apology. Thousands of them have signed a petition demanding reduced tuition and a two-week break in classes for students to adapt to remote learning. The student newspaper published a really harsh editorial piece about how the first two weeks were handled, saying, quote, We're angry, we're scared, and we all saw this coming. Cell phones, maps, transportation, even how we measure time itself, all of this and more depends on the global positioning system, or GPS as you probably know it. But in a New Yorker article, Greg Milner writes, the system could be nearing the end of its usefulness, and this has big implications for you. Yeah, you might be surprised to learn about the history of GPS. It might seem like a pretty modern invention to consumers and regular people. But the system was created in the 1970s by the U.S. military. It sent these 24 satellites into orbit, and the transmissions they're constantly sending allow devices here on Earth to pinpoint their exact location. The military tried to keep it mostly out of civilian hands. But in 2000, right before President Clinton left office, He opened up the system. He made it free to use for the entire world. But now that that system is so widespread and accessible, Milner writes, it's becoming increasingly vulnerable to disruption. Mm -hmm. He profiles an engineering professor named Todd Humphreys, who in 2012 showed the government it was possible to feed false GPS data to a drone. 
he essentially showed how you could hijack the government signal and replace it with your own. And there's been a lot of evidence that various governments and non-state actors have figured out this hijacking maneuver. They call it spoofing. And it's easy to look up how to spoof online. And the technology to pull it off is also getting cheaper. Milner talks about how Russian President Vladimir Putin's security detail uses it wherever he goes to stop any potential drone attacks. But also for nearby cars, boats, anything that relies on GPS, it scrambles their signals and makes their GPS useless. Pretty soon, as spoofing becomes even more widespread, Milner argues it could make the entire system unreliable. Now, this is a problem because there's a vast global infrastructure that relies on GPS working well. Now, Milner says one option could be for the U.S. government to build a better, more reliable system, but it would take more than 700 new satellites, and it's unlikely the government's going to pay for such a massive project. Yeah, what's more likely is that private companies like Amazon or SpaceX will wind up replacing GPS with their own networks. They're doing it now. They've already started sending satellites to Earth's low orbit to build a global Wi-Fi network. The only problem is these companies are probably not going to give away their service for free, like the U.S. military does right now. We could be looking at a future where your GPS-like service comes with a monthly subscription. You can find links to all these stories in today's show notes page. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll talk with you again on Monday.